Hey, welcome back to the I Hear Design Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Yaminen. And for those of you who've been tracking with us for a while, know we're in the middle of a series on technology and the implications that it has on design. And last week, we explored the topic of data-driven design, uh, what it means and how to leverage the information that's collected to improve the design process. And to continue the conversation, I've invited back the team from Linear A, co-founder Joel Yao and data science manager Brett Nebaker. Guys, welcome back to the podcast, and thanks for being here. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, great. Well, last time we delved into, we delved into the topic of data-driven design, and you guys shared some insights into how it works in practice and turning data into something more useful than just numbers. But when you start talking about data collection, as we did last time, you invariably end up getting into privacy and ethical concerns in terms of what you do with the data you've collected from tracking people's behaviors. It's a huge topic, obviously, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so um, let's jump right in. So when it comes to data-driven design, where do you think things start to get murky in terms of ethics? Like, what are the great areas people uh, need to be aware of? I think one of the key things when it comes to collecting data on on occupants is that the murkiness for me comes in two forms. One, it becomes in the, the technical side, which is the security of that data, making sure that even if you're fully transparent with how you're collecting that information uh, with all of your end users, the ability to actually make sure that that data stays yours or theirs and that it is not, like, compromised from a security standpoint. I think things really start to get murky, especially when it comes to facial recognition specifically and other things that may be uh, a result of uninformed data collection, things like web scraping, uh, clear view AI, is something that's been in the news quite a bit recently, specifically around facial recognition. And one of the biggest uh, downsides to what they're what they're doing has been the, we'll say, potentially illegal uh, or at least in violation of a lot of terms around how they gathered the data that they did for facial recognition and who's using it at the end of the day. And this, again, comes back to user security and privacy. That specific example they were web scraping social media, and then those data sets are being accessed by a variety of authority figures that may or may not be using that data with its best and highest use. Yeah, interesting. Brett, you want to weigh in on that as well? Yeah, I think those are uh, those are all really good points. The the you know collection and storage of the data is obviously really important, as Joel touched on, uh, making sure that what you're collecting is really necessary and that what you're collecting is protected. Um, and then I think another thing to add on that, too, is PII is a, is a big thing, too, where last week we talked about phone sensor, you know, data collection where we're, you know, tracking movements and things like that. For me, if I'm working on the data, that's not a huge deal if it's anonymized, but I need to make sure that it's stripped of everything that can identify that person. Yeah, that's a really important point. Yeah, kind of protecting privacy there. What do you guys see as being some of the abuses that can happen if, if the proper safeguards aren't put into place? I think one of the – I think there's intentional abuse and there's unintentional abuse. Um, I think unintentional abuse occurs when you you are using a data set without knowing the underlying methodology of, or the statistics of why it's been collected. And so you might be getting outcomes that you think, you know, are statistically relevant but are, are incredibly biased and you're using the wrong data for, you know, or for the, for the wrong problem. And those types of safeguards occur when you have, 
when it's literally just due to the availability of so many of the algorithms that we use and the availability of so many data sets. It's not, uh, and I, I can, I can speak to this in, in detail as someone that's not a data scientist. And if someone was like, hey, I need you to solve this problem, I would just go start to look for some data that's relevant. Well, I don't know how that data was collected. I don't know if it's, if it was biased by the collection mechanism. I just, I make assumptions around those types of things. I, I don't do that anymore, but that could have been an approach, you know, years ago that would have led to a, an unintentional abuse of that information. Intentional abuse for us comes in the, it comes in the form of like misinformation. Uh, intentionally getting data, shaping it or collecting it for a uh, nefarious outcome that you're trying to design for. And that can be a variety of different things from, you know, police activity all the way to politics. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say like ethical data-driven design looks like in practice? Like how can companies and, and designers ensure they're collecting the right kinds of, of information and acting responsibly on it? So the two things that I think makes for ethical data-driven design, and that's transparency and security. Uh, as Brett mentioned, we want to always try to work with anonymized data. The, the, the personal information that we're using as far as like a person's name uh, or their or their street address or something like that is most of the time not at all relevant to the the types of studies that we're doing. We're more focused around the features of person one, not their first and last name. That doesn't mean that we should be we should just feel free to go collect data on everybody and then just say okay we'll replace their name with a number. Uh, there are ways to reverse engineer that, uh, mm-hmm. and we want to we we obviously want to avoid those scenarios. So I think that's where security comes into place. Uh, and I, Brett, uh, Brett and I both work with uh, protected health information, and Brett's working with uh, very personal finance information. So I can let him speak to to this mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, it's, I guess it goes back to my comment about data as agnostic, right? Like any sort of information, regardless of if it's healthcare information or sensor data or personal finance data, in in all scenarios, you want to make sure that you're being very careful about what what you're storing and how you're utilizing that. And so, you know, if, if we're utilizing that information to to drive design, then we just need to make sure that as we are collecting, storing, and utilizing that data, that it is not exposing in any way specific information about people. You know, if, if we are trying to design a hospital and we are utilizing uh, a bunch of information about all these patients and what they've come to the hospital or the doctor for um, and all the times that they've done it and how long they stayed. As, as Joel said, you know, if you, if you are not careful about it, it can be reverse engineered. So we need to be very, very careful about how we utilize that data and how mm. we are actually storing that data to make sure that none of that information is is exposed in any way because if we, if we do end up exposing it, then... We're done, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one, we, we completely lose the trust of everyone who's involved, right? The, the patients that the data is collected on, the companies that we are helping, you know, we completely lose trust there. And so it's just a matter of making sure that everything that we're collecting, storing, and utilizing is very secure and very, uh, very clean. Right, yeah. Yeah, That's there's, really good there's point. no coming back from, there's no coming back from a data breach, as we've all seen over the last you know, a few years, you, you know, once yeah. it's, uh, there's the joke, like once it's on the internet, it's there forever. And so yeah, even true. in data breaches and other things, the, 
the, the data collection is something I think people, it's an easy thing in many ways to kind of pick on or pick at, but the security of what's being collected is, is a paramount of, of paramount importance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the healthcare scenario is, is particularly interesting too. I didn't really even think about, you know, the HIPAA Health Information Privacy Act. Does that like kind of inform the process? Does it govern uh, what you're allowed to collect? How does that work? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we could probably, we could probably do a whole <laughs> podcast on, uh, on right. data security. Um, <laughs> we'll but, do that next uh, time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think just in general for, for the, for the listeners, I think that is something that Brett, uh, Eric and I take incredibly seriously. Our responsibility, um, when working with protected health information is to protect it. And, and we, we go well above and beyond the, uh, the government security requirements to ensure that whatever we're looking at, we're the only ones looking at. Yeah, that's good. Okay. I mean, this is obviously such a huge topic, like you mentioned. I mean, we could go off on a whole other tangent uh, just in healthcare, but are there other angles to the data and ethics equation that are relevant to the discussion that you guys think about on a regular basis for our listeners that might find interesting? Brett, what do you think about uh, some of the other data ethics questions? You've got a bit of a broader uh, touch on some of that. I, you know, I I don't want to just kind of repeat my same answer, but I mean, it all goes back to just for me and, uh, and all my experience, it's all based on PII. It's all, you know, what are we collecting? Who are we collecting it on? And are we able to secure that? And then, as Joel had mentioned earlier, too, um, there's it's possible to be collecting data and trying to utilize it in a, um, we'll call it an immoral way. <laughs> you know, there, there are times when people will try to be utilizing data to it's very biased uh, in those scenarios. Yeah. Right? Because they're, they're really, they're taking a, they're taking an amoral approach to something and they're applying, and I'm just trying to kind of spitball around what you're saying. I think, you know, to, to pick up on that a little bit, there are oftentimes, and we've seen it, you know, quite a bit in the last several years where data was being either manipulated or collected for a very specific outcome. Um, and that outcome was led by misinformation. So I think, the ethics around why are we collecting this data and what our end goal is. And that's for every, for every architecture firm or analytics company or data broker. However, you know, that, that information is being acquired. At the end of the day, it comes back to what, why are you collecting this? What are you trying to use it for? And that's a, that's really a question at, at an individual level. And, you know, that's why we as a company try to op- operate with a, a high degree of ethics when it comes to, to data collection and analysis because that's, it's very near and dear to our hearts, but that doesn't hold true for necessarily every organization that works with large amounts of data. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, I wanted to shift gears here for a bit for the remaining time that we have and kind of delve a little bit into um, artificial intelligence because I think when we talk about it, data collection kind of, I think, feeds into that. When we're talking about AI, like what is it really and what relevance does it have to like the design industry specifically? So I can start with what it is. Um, I think, you know, and, and the term terms in the data field in general start to get a little bit muddy because um, they kind of get used in a variety of ways. But at its core, um, AI is basically intelligence demonstrated by machines, and the goal is to basically mimic human functions and problem solving. So that's a variety of, of topics and a variety of areas that can be used in things like speech recognition, robotics, um, autonomous cars, playing games, like 
trying to win at chess or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, the, the really broad area of machine learning too. So, um, you know, there's, there's a wide uh, array of things that fall into AI, but then, you know, at its core, AI is basically trying to mimic human functions. Joel, did you have any, any other comments you wanted to add about the AI specifically or how it relates to I the think, design industry? Yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, from there's a couple different ways that, you know, I've seen uh, trends within the design industry. Um, one, there's the there's the, what's marketed within the design industry is AI, which is a lot of times a lot of generative design or scenario modeling and not necessarily something that's mimicking human behavior, but just creating a lot of iterations. So there's a, there's a, you know, within the design field, that's a, that's a big piece. The other part of it is going to be, I think, uh, it's not, it's not necessarily the most exciting thing, but anomaly detection for, um, things like project management, the ability to start to do like for, if we start talking about uh, building information modeling, looking at, you know, quality checks and health checks for quality, uh, the ability to, again, train. Uh, that's something that we can talk about in, in a little bit of detail, but, you know, actually start to label data sets around design quality or specific types of outcomes or categories for design and then being able to leverage uh, machine learning or AI to start to, you know, either predict what a design is going to cost, look at schedule, look at risk uh, and how that starts to get mitigated. So it's a lot of very... It should be a lot of very pragmatic use, um, mm-hmm. in, in, and I think that level of pragmatism is an important thing to take into account. It's not necessarily always going to be the the flashy, you know, spinning tower that's you know generated by four thousand different options. Uh, it, it can be something as simple as being able to identify when you have a cost or schedule overrun before that actually happens, so that a project maintains its its schedule and meets its timelines and the, and the owner's expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there, um, since we're talking about ethics and data-driven design, are there ethical implications that AI carries along with it? Well, I mean, as far as how the machines kind of process the data, or is it like as, as good as the information that you put in there? I think Brett and I would both agree it's probably only as good as the information you put in there. And uh, we, you know, I just mentioned there's what we call like training of data. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You know, one of the things that people have a tendency to it's just something that's glossed over is you have to, at least, especially with design projects, you have to do what's called labeling. Like you have to be able to go in and actually say as a human, as a designer, was this good or was this bad? Is this right or is this wrong? And for classification problems, that's critically important. And if the computer's not going to know straight out of the box if your Revit model is good or bad unless it's been trained to know and understand what good or bad means. And it's no different than, you know, we weren't born with the ability to to speak or have full conversations at six months old or walk or run. There was a lot of training, a lot of education that went into that. And for each individual, that education is different. And that is what starts to, starts to speak to bias and starts to speak to understanding. And that's kind of where I think the, the industry is at right now is, you know, there's a kind of – a lot of people have jumped – that data collection and data validation and data veracity conversation, and they just started generating things, whatever those widgets or things may be. And, you know, I, I really believe that a, at the core, we need to really look at what we're, what we're labeling good and bad, what we're labeling right and wrong, how that's actually being measured and tracked and, and cataloged and be able to have conversations around that 
before we get to this next step of, of AI at that level. Yeah, and speaking of kind of next steps with AI, at our Design Connections uh, event that we put on twice a year, uh, last year one of the keynote speakers was talking about the next paradigm shift coming up, and she mentioned the term singularity. Can you explain that a little bit for our listeners and kind of what it, what implication it has for people? Brett, do you want to uh, attack the singularity? I can talk about the I can talk about Terminator. That'd be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, singularity is basically the point of of no return for technology. So it's basically when the when our growth of technology has become uncontrollable and it just kind of is evolving and moving so fast that uh, that we can't do anything about it. <laughs> I guess I, so, like, if you've seen any of the Avengers movies, there's yeah. a I think it was. Uh, Age of Ultron, uh, and this is not a plug for Marvel. It's just something right. that probably people may be familiar with, but that's an okay. example of of that type of AI where it starts to have a mind of its own. Yeah. So how far out are we from the takeover by robots? <laughs> by the way, but how fast <laughs> how fast is this moving? Yeah, I think uh, I, you know I get asked that question quite a bit, um, and it's always I, and my response is always kind of more hinged on to the hardware side, which is focused around quantum computing and the ability to package, we'll say package a brain, for example, as hardware. And I think, you know, if we, when we achieve the level of stability of basically the pure mimicking processing power of the human brain, then that's probably when the singularity will start to occur. But it's really going to be, I think, driven less by the amount of data we collect and the heart, it's going to be driven more by do we have the hardware that can crunch it the way that our brains can. Right. And yeah. I, I have one little thing to add on, too. I think if you, uh, you know, when, when we're asking how close are we, I think when you see Boston Dynamics robots doing backflips and stuff, I think you go, yeah, we're pretty much there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That is. Um, <laughs> but that's that's one um, that's one small piece of it, right? Like right. there's there's a lot of a lot of functions that that these things would need to uh, to carry out, uh, and that's you know, yeah. one piece, and it's incredibly impressive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's it's incredibly impressive, and I think that's where you know the thing that's going to be where I start to see it is to take that even one step further. When an autonomous car is driving in a Boston Dynamics robot, the Dynamics robot jumps out of the way. That's where, and the car swerves, that's where I yeah. think we're really going to be starting to approach that, that singularity, where these independent decisions that right. can't really be trained against, or it's very difficult to train against from a data perspective, are starting to happen in real time by mm-hmm. machines, then yeah. that's where I think we're really going to start to see that to occur. And again, that's coming back a lot to hardware. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's pretty mind-boggling just to even think about it, but it's really an exciting time, you know, and, and it's just to think about how technology is going to continue to shape our lives. But yeah, hopefully we can we can all navigate these waters really well and help ensure technology is going to improve people's lives in future generations without of the ethical missteps we've been talking about. But Joel and Brett, it's, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, just thanks so much for sharing your insights with our listeners. I know they appreciate it. No, thank you, Robert. This has been a, this has been a lot of fun and. Uh, if you ever want to go down the rabbit hole on data, you uh, were more than happy to have another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I already know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> hey, and and for our listeners that might want to look up more on you guys, if you want to give them the plug for the Linear A website, like where can they go for more information? Sure. So uh, we we do have a uh, it's 
fully functioning website. It's not being driven by AI. Uh, it's being driven <laughs> by Brad <and> myself. <laughs> but it's uh, io. And feel free to, to browse about there. Our contact information is listed as well as some of our other team members. Um, and for anybody out there, feel free to, you know, if you find the conversation interesting, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Great. Thanks for that. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. For our listeners, I hope you guys will join us again next week for our third and final installment on our series on technology, where we're going to be talking about uh, augmented reality and virtual reality and how those tools are being put into use in design. So thanks again, and be well, everyone.